be careful about following the customer. You want to use the customer's feedback as a data point. You shouldn't be doing what they're telling you to do because sometimes they don't know what they need because they're not spending their time assessing and understanding where the market is moving. So I knew for a fact that at some point, pizza orders would move online. And so for me in the early days, I would go and talk to owners about online and it was intimidating for them. They're already embedded in their habits. So like changing those habits was very difficult. They were just set in their own ways of operating the business. And it was a real-time business it was operating as I was going and showing up. But what I figured out was that at that time, they all had fax machines. So they all had a fax number on the physical menu that they would distribute, mostly aimed at companies. And so once I saw that, we figured out how to convert an online order into a fax order through an API. For the first 200 or 300 locations, it stopped being about online ordering. I would just go in and say, how many times does that fax machine print in a week? And they would say like two times. And then I would say, well, do you want that to print multiple times a day? And they were like, that'd be great. And so that's the way that we've got them on board early days. And then the pizza industry is a bit of a community. So like word kind of spread. So there was a peer-to-peer -peer sort of effect. And then I had to figure out, okay, how do I scale this thing? Welcome to The Peel, where we explore the world's greatest startup stories. I'm your host, Turner Novak, founder of Banana Capital, the venture capital firm that consumes the most pizza per capita. Today, my guest is Elir Sella, founder and CEO of Slice, the online ordering and all-in-one software platform built for independent pizza shops. You might think, eh, pizza, but it's a $48 billion market. Pizza chain Domino's has been one of the best performing public stocks over the past two decades. And the number of independent shops are growing about 24 times faster than the big chains, aka Elir's customers. We dig into the founding story of Slice, its unique reverse franchise model, and all the benefits it brings to smaller pizzerias, bootstrapping to $3 million in profits, why Mr. Beastburger failed, and his thoughts on cloud kitchens more broadly, why building a strong board is important for any company, and why he's turned down two acquisition offers, one of which would have net him over nine figures personally. Thank you to Jeff Richards at GGV for suggesting some great questions, and thanks to Elia for coming on. I also want to apologize. We had some audio hiccups in the first 10 minutes of the recording. It's good conversation, so just bear with us. It does get better. Now, let's jump in after a quick word from SecureFrame. It's the automated compliance platform built by security experts. Regular listeners already know SecureFrame helps thousands of customers get and stay compliant with security and privacy frameworks like SOC 2, ISO 2701, HIPAA, PCI, GDPR, and more. Its newest feature, Comply AI, works in real time to quickly generate security and compliance guidance as code, which speeds up cloud remediation and time to compliance. Companies like Ramp, Angelus, and Coda trust SecureFrame for all their compliance and security needs. I'm an investor in SecureFrame, and I highly recommend it to every founder I meet. Check the link in the show notes to get started with a demo. SecureFrame's in-house team of compliance experts and former auditors will get you set up. Thank you, SecureFrame, for supporting the show. And now, let's talk to Elir at Slice. How's it going? Oh, the live in the dream. Live, live in the dream. dream. Yeah. We're here in your office. I'm in the Slice office. You guys make software for independent pizzerias. It's a podcast studio that looks like a pizza shop. The one and only where you will record in an actual pizza booth. Yeah, so we're pretty close right now. Exactly. I thought we could start it off. Can you just talk about what's the most interesting thing in pizza or in the pizza market? Pizza is incredibly fascinating, especially in the U.S., what I've learned is that pizza is a staple. It is a massive, massive industry. It's probably the most overlooked aspect of what we do and why Slice exists. There are 80,000 pizza shops in the US who collectively manage 
about $48 billion in sales. And that doesn't include Costco pizza, doesn't include frozen pizza. These are pizzerias of which about 25% are the big chains combined. I call that big pizza. Pizza Hut, Domino's, Papa John's, Little Caesars. So it's about $47, $48 billion in sales. Of that, about $30 billion is independent. That's like Joe's Pizza, Maria's Pizza Shop in every town in the country. Pizza basically represents almost half of all takeout delivery shops in the country. So why are there so many independent pizza shops? Because when I think of there's some markets where a lot of consolidation, you know, there's a couple big players, small business don't exist. Why are there still, despite the success of Domino's Pizza, publicly traded company, one of the best performing stocks in the public stock market over the last two decades, but it's still so fragmented. What's the structure that's going on? Yeah, one of my biggest mistakes in my career is to not parallel path my slice journey with an investment in Domino's in 2010. I should have like put, I don't know, $50,000 in Domino's and then also started Slice because much of Slice's vision is inspired by the success of Domino's in terms of their focus on digital and how they've made their franchisees very, very successful. I think in terms of like why there's just continued growth and independence. And in fact, in 2022, it was a record year for independent uh, shops in the space. 4,800 net new locations in terms of independence opened up in just one year, an all-time record. Compare that to about net 200 new big chain locations. On a net basis, there's definitely more independence opening up than the chains. Why? I think there's probably three reasons. One, it has to do with pizza. Like pizza is an American staple. It is a food that is incredibly affordable. It travels very, very well. In some cases, it's probably better delivered than eating it at the shop. And then it's social. It's a social product. Shrek is probably one of the, if not the only food product that is social that you can order and there's friends over or family pizza night. Maybe there's an event. And so for those reasons, it's become a staple. The second reason I think is because the cost of pizza is actually relatively inexpensive in terms of making it. A large cheese pizza, I think probably still costs less than $3 to make. So less than $3. The average price, retail price of a pizza in the US, it's about $17. So you have some really good margins. It's a very good business if you know how to operate it. And I think the third part is a lot of people, I call them makers. Like this is sort of synonymous with baking, right? Like people want to bring something unique to the world. People are very passionate about this product. They want to try on different styles. And I think they want to turn that passion into a business. And so big chains take that creative freedom away. And so the only other option is to be independent. Yeah, I didn't think about that creativity aspect. Most food, it's it's really hard to make it. Of course, they all taste different, but it all kind of looks the same. Like you get a sub, it just looks like a sub. Correct. No what's in it. I mean, like a burger, they may taste different, some are way better. But yeah, with pizza, it's like you can do some very interesting things, which not even with the taste, but also that how they look. Yeah, I mean, you've got like the type of bake, you've got the type of toppings and selection of different toppings that you can create. You can do a lot of things with it, you know, fermented dough or a different kind of ovens. And it's a fascinating category. I think it tends to attract some of the most creative like makers in the food space. Your family has a deep history of pizza. Could you kind of talk through that? And maybe that will translate more to what you're doing. Yeah, it started with my grandfather, my parents, my uncle. They had a pizza shop in Manhattan on 75th and 3rd in the 70s called Charlie's Pizza. So Charlie's Pizza, small format takeout delivery shop, 24-hour operation. My family worked there, you know, day and night. 
and they became very successful as a result. One location? That was one location. They never expanded. They never expanded. We actually, they moved back to Europe. And then in the 90s, they moved back to New York. So they've gone back and forth. When they moved back, my uncle once again opened up a pizza shop called John Anthony's Pizza in Brooklyn. And so that was another shop that was sort of directly in our family. My uncles from my mom's side had a pizza shop in Long Island. Uh, relatives have a ton of pizza shops today. Friends have a ton of pizza shops. I would say over 30 family and friends have pizza shops. I'm Albanian by background, so I know, especially in the New York area, the Albanian community is really uh, involved in the space. I think because of the natural migration from Albania, first stop was Italy. They would work in hospitality jobs, primarily in Italian restaurants or pizza shops. And then when they made it to New York, they brought that craft over. And so the reason why I started was, one, my uncle actually became sick at the pizza shop that he owned in Brooklyn. He actually had a stroke and lost his speech, lost the use of the right side of his body. Much of that really, I would say, a result of the stresses that exist in running a very small business. And we're talking about really small businesses. This isn't like some company with 30 employees. We're talking about owner-operated. These owners are inheriting every business problem. So they start off by wanting to make pizza and, and support their family, pretty quickly they're inheriting financial jobs. They've got to be the marketer, the technology person, HR, the whole thing. And it's incredibly lonely and it is incredibly difficult and challenging. You know, this is where I think the franchise model has solved a lot of these problems, right? So when you look at Papa John's franchisee, they don't have to deal with the same challenges. Much of those challenges are solved by Papa John's corporate or Domino's corporate. But the trade-off is you can't be yourself. You can't be Turner's Pizza Shop. And your grandmother's recipe doesn't matter. Slice was very important because I thought there could be a third way for people to operate in the industry. One way would be the franchise model. The second way would be purely independent, kind of what my uncle did. Third way would be working together as a team having the support that's franchise-like, but remaining independent. So, you know, as we say, in business for yourself, but not by yourself. And that was really the spirit of, of why I started Slice. So it's essentially, we were just talking about this a couple of minutes ago, so I'm cheating. This is your insight online. It's essentially a reverse franchise model. Correct. Uh, for better or worse, like that's the term I've used. The term franchise in the independent space doesn't have the most positive connotation, right? That's why people chose to be independent. Uh, so I definitely don't want people to think that we're like, franchising these locations. But the reason why I use that term is just as an analogy in order to educate the market that Slice brings forward the economies of scale and the capabilities that benefit the Domino's franchisees without having to trade off the independence. So what are some of those benefits? The first benefit uh, that I learned that was really driving up the Domino's performance that we spoke about through stock was the shift of the consumer behavior from offline to digital. So how do you enable independence with online commerce? This was a channel that was absolutely not enabled for the category. And still today, you'd be shocked at how many small businesses have no website or a non-working website or no online ordering. It's still a very much a, a long tail, fragmented world. But commerce enablement is the first thing that we really needed to solve so that we can bring the benefits of that channel to the small business. What are the benefits? When a consumer goes from ordering by phone, to ordering digital, they order more food. We have a direct relationship with that customer so we can help them order more frequently. And then it costs the pizzeria a lot less to serve that customer. Because there's no staff. You don't, you don't have, have to answer the phone. You don't have to make mistakes. You know, everything's very transparent. Everything's very like streamlined. And so that was uh, step one. 
Step two was a point of sale product, basically. We call it an operating system. It's Slice Register, and this is a workflow tool for inside the shop to help the owner make sense of all their channels, because now you have online, you have the phone, you have people walking in. How do we make sure that all of that information lives in one place so we can create feedback loops for the operator? And I think you mentioned earlier, it's every single independent restaurant kind of benefits from the other insights and other data that's flowing across the city, the country, et cetera, right? Yeah, the theme for Slice is economies of scale. How do you help operators not feel alone in their journey? And how do you bring the benefits of scale to the individual location? The goal is to hopefully have as many independent shops on the same system so that they can communicate. Not communicate like terms of words, but communicate in terms of data and insights so we can share some of those network-wide insights back with the individual shop. Things like trends of menu pricing, trends of who's open when, trends of cost. So that's the second product. And then most recently, we launched what we call The Goods. And that is the buying power initially around packaging, pizza boxes, bags, plates, cups, napkins, things like that. And then do you help them with customizing or is it down the road maybe? Uh, That's something that we're working on today and in the near future. For now, it's mostly replacing the generic pizza box. So the pizza box that you get that says hot pizza now says the local favorite. It has like a consumer play in it. There's a QR code that consumers can scan and it sort of shifts that consumer behavior over to the digital channels. So what's usually the initial hook then? Like if I'm a pizza owner, when your BDRs are talking to the customers, what's the thing that gets them to convert usually? So it depends. I think the cool thing about companies, especially as they go multi-product, is that each product can be an on-ramp for the customer, in this case, the pizza shop. So what we learned is that over time, you have all these different pizza shops that are at different points in their life cycle. So you have a shop that just opened yesterday. Their need is probably demand because they just opened. No one really knows that they exist. So they really need demand. And then you have like Joe's Pizza here in New York. If I go to Joe's Pizza and say, hey, I'm going to bring you more customers, they're going to say, I I don't need more customers. I need efficiency. I need like maybe cost savings. So that's the spectrum. Depends on where the shop is on the spectrum. And then that'll determine what product will resonate most with that merchant. And then the goal is to attach more and more products over time. And then do you remember... And maybe we can kind of, maybe we deviate the story because now you did a different business before Slice. So I don't know what the order of operations we want to go through here. But do you remember what that moment was when you just were like, oh my God, this is this is what I'm going to do. I think it's going to work. Like, do you remember like how it all played out? So Slice started as a bootstrap company. It was under the brand mypizza.com. Why was that the brand? That was the domain name I can get at the time. This was 2009. Like apps were still not, you know, yeah. ever present. It was very much an online web-based business. And um, yeah, mypizza.com was the domain I can get. And so the idea was to create a fourth brand to compete with the big chains. So it was like consumers have options of Domino's or or Pizza Hut. We wanted to create a brand at the time, MyPizza, to represent all the independents. So did you kind of go to family and kind of get a couple of them onboarded? So the first few were all family. And then we started to talk to other pizza shops. And in 2010, like pizzerias don't, I mean, no one thought that they needed online. And this is a message I would say that I share with our team and I would share externally. It's be careful about following the customer. You want to use the customer's feedback as a data point. You shouldn't be doing what they're telling you to do because sometimes they don't know what they need because they're not spending their time assessing and understanding where the market is moving. So I knew for a fact that at some point, pizza orders would move online. But they didn't know that. They didn't know that. What did they think they wanted? They wanted more sales. And so for me in the early days, I would go and talk to owners about online and 
it was intimidating for them. They're already embedded in their habits. So like changing those habits was very difficult. They were just set in their own ways of operating the business. And it was a real-time business. It was operating as I was going and showing up. But what I figured out was that at that time, they all had fax machines. So they all had a fax number on the menu, on the menu, on the physical menu that they would distribute, mostly aimed at companies. So like some admin at a company would fax an order to a pizza shop. So that was like high margin because they were $200, $300 orders. Correct. Right? Okay. Correct. And so once I saw that, we figured out how to convert an online order into a fax order through an API. And so in the first, let's call it for the first 200 or 300 locations, it stopped being about online ordering. I would just go in and say, how many times does that fax machine print in a week? And they would say like two times. And then I would say, well, do you want that to print multiple times a day? And they were like, that'd be great. And so that's the way that we got them on board early days. And then the pizza industry is a bit of a community. So like word kind of spread. So there was a peer to peer sort of effect. And then I had to figure out, okay, how do I scale this thing? And it was bootstrapped, right? Bootstrapped. Like you had not raised any money. Nothing. Full. Okay. But you had previously built and sold a previous company? Yeah. So before my pizza, now Slice, I had another company right out of school. I launched a tech support company called Nerdforce. And I got this inspiration from a company in Canada called Nerds on Site. And they were doing such a great job in Canada, empowering these independent contractors to have a brand. It was sort of the same theme independent, but not alone. And so with Nerdforce, we replicated that model in the US. Geek Squad and Best Buy became incredibly popular in 2005. People wanted to get into that business. That was not a franchise model. So we started getting a bunch of calls for people who were like, how do I own a Nerdforce franchise? I had no idea what that meant. I was like 23, 24 years old. What is a franchise? So how did you figure that out? Well, we started getting so many calls so that I locked myself in my office for a weekend and I was like, what is a franchise and how do I franchise this thing? Because if people want one, like I should sell it. So I would say within the next uh, couple of weeks, I figured out how to trademark my own brand. So I did that because I couldn't afford hiring lawyers and all these things. Trademark the brand, filled out something that at the time was called a uniform franchise offering circular, which is like a standardized document that if you're a franchise model, you have to give to the prospective franchisee, the buyer. Got those things done within like a couple of weeks. And then all of a sudden we went from being Nerdforce, the tech support company, to the Nerdforce franchise company, which is a company that enables tech support companies. Okay. Yeah. Can you really quick, like 10 seconds, just explain how a franchise system works for people who aren't familiar? Yeah. A franchise system is, uh, is pretty straightforward. You have a company that figured out a successful business model and put process in place to a point where anyone can come in and replicate that same business model in some different geography. And then in exchange, they get royalties. And the people usually pay to kind of get the right to use that brand in their processes. Exactly. In our space, for example, someone can apply to become a franchisee of Domino's. Domino's gives them the right to open up a Domino's location in a specific geography that's exclusive to them. They follow all of Domino's systems and processes And they take advantage of Domino's brand marketing and buying power and community. And in exchange, they have to pay Domino's, I don't know if this is the exact number, but let's call it 5 or 6% of gross sales. Now, some other things that can uh, be in play is Domino's forces their franchisees to buy all of their supplies from Domino's. So 60% of Domino's revenue is the supplies they sell to their franchisees. It's a very powerful model. It's probably one of the most powerful marketing slash business innovations in history. Why is it so powerful? Because you can, as a parent company, as a franchisor, you can scale very quickly with very little capital. You use other people's capital because they exactly. usually have to pay to, exactly. to do. Yeah, okay. Not only are they paying for the right to open up the brand, 
but they also have to pay for the cost of setting up that location in the geography. So all of the, let's call it capital risk, is on the franchisee side. And then as a franchisor, you're aggregating these franchisees and with scale, you're getting leverage. And then you can apply that scale in a number of ways. So you're basically just going on trying to find really ambitious, talented, wealthy or wealthy enough to be able to to Correct. almost launch their own business. Correct. And then these models become so predictable that it also becomes easier to then take a loan against them. And so you can open up more locations. So the more scale you get and the more proven you are, the easier it is to scale further. So it becomes like a snowball effect. And it's not even like you're really, I don't want to minimize what Domino's does, but it's not like you're really doing that much if you're Domino's. You're like, oh, cool. We have 10,000 people who applied for a license. We'll pick the 100 that look the best and they'll make us a bunch of money. Like it's why it's a good business. Yeah, I would say there are some brands that are well-known that I think do a very good job. I think Domino's does a lot of work in terms of their investment in technology, their investment in marketing. You have to be really thoughtful about who you select as franchisees. You have to help them build their store, even though it may not be the Domino's capital. But then there are franchise models who I would say more prey on predominantly immigrant aspiring entrepreneurs who want to control their own destiny, want some predictability and performance and then typically they're let down. So you've got both sides of the of the spectrum. Okay, so you decided you were going to do it with Nerdforce, and then how did it go? Like, were you in New York at the time? I was in New York. That was uh, so Nerdforce was my MBA in franchise. Okay. I mean, I learned everything. Did you mess up like any big mistakes? Yeah, I messed up a lot. You know, one of my first mistakes with that business was not understanding that as we created leads for the franchisees, they can then off-board from the franchise system and tell the customer, hey, call me directly next time so that I don't have to give a portion of what I'm making to the parent company. How big of a problem that did that end up being for you? Uh, it became a decent problem because we're spending money on marketing, but then capturing very little of the, of the long tail sort of LTV of the customer. And so I changed the model to a flat model, meaning every franchisee was paying a flat fee per week, regardless of volume. And then, you know, that kind of really helped the business scale. We ended up scaling to about 124 franchisees and then sold it in 2008. That was probably good timing to get out. I was approached to sell, trying to remember why I said yes, I was trying to buy it, had like managed services, capabilities we didn't have. I stayed on board for another year and a half, but that was June of 2008, November of 2008, financial world collapsed. Had the deal closed. It had closed, thankfully, but a big chunk of my deal was in equity because this was a public company in the UK. So I would say the equity aspect of the deal kind of went to nothing. But I did have enough cash from the deal that helped me ultimately launch Slice. So it was November 2008. When did you start kind of getting this idea for Slice? So with the franchise model, what I learned was, okay, this is really powerful. But I didn't feel that good about forcing a single brand on everybody. Because there was a lot of people who were like, hey, I want to do my own thing, or I want to have my own flavor in terms of how I serve customers. You can see that people wanted some independence. But I also saw the benefits, like scale was any market we launched in, the individual sort of independent player in the in the space. So Nerdforce launches in like Tulsa, Oklahoma. In Tulsa, there's ABC Computer Repair. ABC Computer Repair had no shot because we brought scale. And the cost of our supplies was lower. We had a knowledge base. So, you know, a Nerdforce franchisees can solve a problem in five minutes because they're tapping into like a knowledge base of 500 other technicians across 100 locations. Whereas an individual, you know, ABC Computer Repair, 
just kind of had their own experience. So those were like really powerful lessons that I ultimately started to think about where else can they be applied. One thing that helped me was that during that NerdForce journey, a lot of my family members that own pizza shops wanted us to build websites for them. That was one of our products. So we built a few websites and then someone said, hey, what about online ordering? I'm watching TV and all I see is Domino's advertising online ordering. How do I do that? And so I spent some time figuring out how real this thing was. Was this the fax machine? This was before the fax machine issue. This was like late 08, early 2009. So I learned everything there is to learn about the pizza industry. So learned about that scale, learned about the sort of the fragmentation of the independent market, learned about the fact that they were all lacking the scale and the tools. So I was like, you know what? I think I can build a hybrid. Instead of building the next franchise, I think I can build a hybrid. I can build a reverse franchise starting with the pizza industry. So I remember getting the domain mypizza.com. The other industry I wanted to do this was, this is pre-Uber. I wanted to do the same thing for black car limousine drivers. So I bought a domain called Limolot. Then I bought a domain called mystylist.com and that was for beauty parlors. And so the idea was to create these like vertical reverse franchises in multiple categories. But really my passion and what I knew best was pizza. And so as soon as we launched the My Pizza business and the way that took off, I immediately turned off the other things. I was like, okay, I don't want to distract myself. And so I was doing both. I was actually working with NerdForce and then I was doing this sort of My Pizza thing on the side. And the turning point when I decided to go all in on My Pizza was I was at a board meeting for NerdForce with the parent company. And I was supposed to email the board some information about NerdForce. I sent out the email and I sent it from my mypizza.com email address. So, so for me, that was like, okay, this is the last day. Uh, time to, uh, time to, not that they said this is your last day, but I was like, once I'm starting to send emails to this other company with my mypizza.com email address, time to move on. What was your kind of position and power leverage in the company? Like, were you a CEO of a business unit? Were yeah. you, okay. Yeah, I was the head of the NerdForce business. That was one of three businesses. And we were like the new darling. They had just acquired us. I'm in this board meeting. We're talking about, you know, how do we scale franchises? Oh, in the board meeting? Yeah, was, oh. yeah, yeah. I had my, uh, at the time, a Dell laptop open. And, and then like, uh, like an idiot, I'm like, I write another email. I was like, please disregard the last email. And then the new email was from uh, nerdforce.com and... Um, so that was fun. Yeah. Did you just like, was that the last day or? It wasn't the last day. The next day is when I said, Hey, I think it's time for me to move on. Yeah, yeah. that's fair. And yeah. do you think you did that because you were just so excited about my pizza? Like you were just in that mindset or was it just kind of mistake? It was, it was probably because I had started to spend so much time on my pizza that it became sort of more of the default email I was using. It was just sort of a, it was like a, a signal. It was a representation of where my mind share was. So it, I wouldn't say it was like a complete accident. I just don't think at that time I was just all into my pizza. So then what happened after that? Did you you step down from NerdForce? Yeah, so I stepped down from NerdForce and I have some money from this acquisition. And I was like, okay, time to really start scaling this. Was it just you or did you have a couple people me. already? No, it was just me for, uh, I, I built a prototype through a partnership with like an India-based outsourced like developer. And that worked pretty well? Yeah. I mean, I didn't know. I was just like, who can build this thing for me? I designed yeah. it myself in like Adobe or something like that. I designed sort of what I wanted the website to look like. And then I was like, can you build this? And they built it. And I remember partnering with our first shop was this place called Pizza Club in Edgewater, New Jersey, owned by my relative. And we turn on this website. Uh, Pizza Club advertises the fact that they have online ordering. And I, I want to say in like a day or two, first order flows in. Some guy named Justin. Okay. I don't know the last name, but their name was Justin. Yeah. 
they ordered a large pizza, a chicken roll, and a salad. And I was like, holy shit, like, it works. works. Yeah. That was, I mean, that was an, an amazing, an amazing moment. I called the pizzeria owner. I was like, Billy, this is crazy. Like, yeah. how did this happen? He's like, I know. Oh my God. How do we do more of this? Uh, so that was, that was that moment. So yeah, started to bring on some, some other shops. And then I don't know how, maybe it was through peer-to-peer word of mouth, but there was a pizzeria called Emilio's Pizza in Phoenix, Arizona. Wait, but this first one was in New York. This first one was in New York. We got a bunch on board that were relatives and whatnot. You know, we're ramping up decently. And then some pizza shop in Phoenix, Arizona wants to join. Did you have anyone in between or was it literally just? So it was like New York, New York, New York, 30 shops and then Phoenix. In fact, it was was ID number 51 on Slice. So it's the 51st shop. I still remember it. They're still on the platform. They're one one of our successful stories. And they jump on board and the operator there calls me one day and goes, Elir, customers are telling me that my website is saying that I'm closed every day, three hours early. And I was like, that's not good for business. You don't want to say you're closed at 7 p.m. when you're you know, still open. And I couldn't figure it out. And so I put a post on Craigslist to find a developer locally because the person who built the website couldn't figure out the problem. So I put a post on Craigslist to find a developer locally. And this guy, Sam Kennedy, responds. He was in Queens. I was in Staten Island. We're like, where do you want to meet up? He's like, Brooklyn. Okay, halfway. Let's do it. We meet up. He opens up sort of the code. He's like, what are you doing with this thing? Like, what is this? So I explained to him what we're trying to do. And he's like, well, that's interesting. All the transactions I can see here, including credit card numbers and everything, like whoever built this is just aggregating all of this sensitive data on their own like spreadsheet. And the problem that he found in terms of why the shop was closing was because the entire website had been built on Eastern Time. It was just like, you're either Eastern Time Zone or you're not. Was this because the developers that you were working with just didn't do that? Or did you not realize that that was happening? I think it was just both. I think the developer was just like taking literal direction. And then I didn't think of West Coast time zones. Yeah, and this was your first non-New York customer. So. Exactly. So those were some of the like early, early challenges. But it was a, almost a six-year bootstrap journey where we did things like converting orders to faxes. There was a number of shops where I had to phone in the order myself. You would order on my pizza. I would then call the pizzeria and read out your order. I did that for like two years. You personally? Or you didn't even like hire someone? I ended up hiring someone two years in. Was it because you didn't have enough margin to play with to hire someone? It was still pretty small operation or? No margin. And I wouldn't say the volume was there yet. It was like we were doing maybe 30, 40 orders a day. Like we weren't doing volume, right? So when an order would come in, you just immediately pick up the phone and call? Okay. No matter where I was. And all my friends and family members got used to this like ringtone on my BlackBerry at the time. And then eventually the iPhone. But as soon as people heard the ringtone, if we were in the car, music dialed down. And then I would call as if I'm like in some office. I know there was kind of like a moment where you've mentioned this before, I think publicly. You had built a business to a point of, I think you said 40 million or some. Okay. So it's 40 million in revenue, 3 million in profits. Like you were pretty profitable. Yeah. So February, I remember this moment, February of 2015, I'm sitting at a Starbucks. This is like five years. Five years in. Okay. And we're just heads down, hiring a couple of people here and there, mostly in Macedonia where I'm from, adding more and more shops. How many people on the team? I don't know. uh, Less than 10. Wow. 40 million revenue with like eight employees. We had one engineer, which was Sam Kennedy, who I ended up hiring full time. We had a handful of people in Macedonia and we're just bringing on locations every single day. Mostly New York or was it like... That was pretty distributed. Pretty distributed, okay. Yeah, and so February of 2015, I don't even have an accounting system. I'm, I'm, I'm tracking my sales on an Excel sheet. I look at 
our performance that month. And for the month, we had, I want to say, 300,000 in revenue, 40 million run rate on GMV, so top line sales. So GMV was on a 40 million run rate. Revenue was for the month was 300,000 or maybe 400,000 because it was 10%. Out of that, like straight bottom line profit was like 300 grand or 250,000 for the month. I was like, holy shit, like this is a real business. Took one month of profit. So I took $250,000. I went to Manhattan Motor Cars in the city here and I bought a Bentley. You know, next month we'll have another 250. It's fine. It's, I mean, five years of working from Starbucks, I guess that's that's fair. I don't know. I'm just like, I don't know what to do with the money. I ended up doing like a campaign with Z100 here in New York, the radio station where we gave them like 60 grand and they were just promoting my pizza with a jingle. Oh, it was still my pizza. Yeah. Okay. This was still my pizza in 2015. But then I want to say a couple months after that, is when I realized, wait, I'm doing a real disservice here. There's a very big opportunity. And this was around the time that I got an acquisition offer for $18 million. That's a lot of Bentleys. A lot of Bentleys. But when I got that acquisition offer and I decided to turn it down, that's when I reached out to some of the founders of Seamless who um, really opened their sort of doors to me. And I would say that became the beginning of the second version of Slice. This is a good probably time to transition to that, but I'm also curious... Why do you turn down an $18 million offer? Yeah, it would have been life-changing. I mean, all cash, $18 million, sole owner, no investors. I was inclined to do it. And then I asked myself, okay, what will I do after this? And what the, my answer was that I would want to build a company very similar to what my pizza was or Slice. And so I was like, okay, well, then maybe five years later, I'll build another company that's $20 million. But then I asked myself, what if I treat this business as that new company? So what if I don't sell? But I come in tomorrow and say, okay, my pizza is this new company, and now I'm going to go heads down again for another five years. What will that look like? And so once I kind of asked myself that and answered that question, the first thing I did was went on Twitter, where I'm active. I tagged some of the leaders in the food tech space. Wiley Cirilli, who is the seamless uh, exec and had founded a company called Single Platform, he responded, and that began the journey of the second phase of the company. So you literally connect with him from Twitter? Yeah, so I tag him on Twitter and I was like, hey, Wiley, uh, do you have some time to talk? Did you say anything of like, here's what I'm building? Or was that all you said? That's all I said. And for folks who may know Wiley, he's very popular for a good reason. He's incredibly helpful in the ecosystem here in New York. He responded. And so he's like, sure, DM me. And I was like, well, I can't because you're not following me on Twitter. <laughs> so then he follows me. I send him a message and he's like, call me. We jump on a call. He's like, what's going on? I said, well, I have this company, mypizza.com. You know, it's this reverse franchise model for pizza shops, dot, dot, dot. And he's like, sure, call me when you have like 100 shops and we can talk. And I was like, well, I have 3,000. And he's like, come to my office tomorrow. And at the time he was working at First Round Capital. And so I go to his office and he introduces me to Josh Kopelman and some of these amazing, amazing investors and Chris Frolic. And I end up meeting a bunch of them. And they realized that, okay, the best next step is to really introduce Elia and this company to some real seasoned leaders who can help sort of scale the company from this point forward. And so that was the start of phase two. Was that technically a seed round? I mean, you probably were a lot further than most. Yeah. So folks were like, okay, what do we do? And they're like, okay, we have to raise a round. And I was like, I don't need money. I have $3 million in the bank account, very little expenses. I need a team. But in order for folks to really get involved and exchange equity, I've got to take some capital. So we ended up raising a million dollars at, uh, I want to say, 15 or $20 million post money valuation. Wow, that's a pretty good deal for the investors. 
Well, I guess it wasn't that dilutive for you though also. Correct. And so that was the beginning of, so we wound down the bootstrap company. We actually just reincorporated, relaunched the whole company in October, November of 2015. Is that when Slice was born? Like, did you rebrand? Not yet. So part of that new journey was, okay, let's hire a marketing lead. Brought on uh, this really brilliant marketing leader, Nick Karat, who was the marketing leader at Plated at the time. Plated, was that food delivery? It was kind of like a Blue Apron alternative. Anyway, he came on board and he's like, Ilir, how you know married are you to my pizza as a brand? And I was like, look, I just want to do what's best for the business. And one of our employees at the time was like, we should call it Slice. And everyone's like, no, I don't think you should do that because it's a common term. It's impossible to own. But when people say that to me, I'm just like, yeah, I'm more drawn to it. And the marketing leader said, look, whether Slice becomes synonymous with this business or not will be solely dependent on how successful Slice is as a business. If we succeed, we'll own Slice. If we don't succeed, we're not going to own the brand. Yeah, it wouldn't even matter anyways. Exactly. So we rebranded to Slice in October of 2016. And then there was another point Jeff Richards specifically said, you got to ask this. You had an offer to buy the company magnitudes higher than that offer. At what point did this happen? That was in 2019, March of 2019. We rebranded to Slice. We had just launched the consumer app. By the way, up until 2017, we don't even have a consumer app. By that point, we're doing 100 million in GMV all through like web properties. And I'm at the International Pizza Expo in Vegas, which is this huge deal. I never heard of it. Everyone's got to go there. Really? Everyone okay. has to go to it's the International like Pizza Expo. Everyone has a booth. International Pizza Expo, booths, cheese, dough, sauce, point of sale company, like you name it. Everyone's there. It's a moment in time when 10,000 plus pizzeria owners come together. Wow. So that's like 50, or probably like 30% of all the independents. Yeah, it's a huge deal. Everyone waits for that moment in time. It's in March every year. And I'm at the Pizza Expo and one of Jeff's other portfolio companies was trying to recruit our CMO. And our CMO was like turning them down. And Jeff is reaching out to them and Jeff was like, where are, what is this company slice? Like, where yeah, are why you? Why do you want to join my other company? That's... I've never heard of this thing. Yeah, yeah. And at the time we were at the Pizza Expo and so was the marketing leader. And so uh, the marketing leader is like, we're here and this is what the company is. And we were in the process of doing a real round. Uh, so we were about to raise a 15 million round. And Jeff is like, oh my God, I got to meet Elir. And so we jump on a phone call. I want to say six hours, maybe eight hours later. Jeff is in Vegas with Robin Lee, who's also amazing at GGV Capital. They're both in Vegas, show up to the Pizza Expo, and we spend a day together. And that's how I met Jeff and ultimately decided that GGV and Jeff are the right partners. Wow, that's that's a pretty quick turnaround. Yeah, that was 2017. So with that 15 million, which was like huge infusion of capital at the time. Yeah, well, what did the balance sheet look like at that point? Like how much cash did you have? We did a smaller round in 2016. So we had raised a total of like $4 million. And so suddenly you're getting 15. But when you were like kind of profitable-ish, like maybe profitable break-even. Ish. Yeah. After 2015, we were operating mostly at a break-even point because we started to really hire like a dev team, product team. We didn't even have an accounting team. So we started to really put investments in the company. That 15 million, I think, led to a step change in performance for sure. So how big were you at that point? Uh, at that point, we were doing about 100 million in GMV. What are you guys at now? Over a billion I want to say this year we'll probably do 1.3 billion in GMV. Okay, that's like from January 1st to December 31st of 23. And that's online GMV. We have offline GMV through our point of sale system, but I tend to not count that because it's not monetized the same. Interesting. Is it do monetize that similar to how like a toast would or a square would where it's like a small 
Yeah, that's payment processing and like some small SaaS fee. Sorry. So the 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 big offer that was in 2019. Yeah, that was uh, that was tough to say no to that one. What was the context of it? Was it a big strategic? Was it a financial firm that wanted to acquire? Or? It was a company in the point of sale game that was very horizontal in nature that I think wanted to really get into the e-commerce game because e-commerce players were starting to get into the point of sale game. So I think for them, it was a a real opportunity to potentially create more of a formidable option to Shopify, for example, but in the restaurant space. And so came together pretty quickly, huge number, grateful for having a great board around the room who helped me think about the opportunity. I would say if the number was a little bit higher, the history may be different, but it was still a very big number. So was it a similar thought process then where you're like, it's a big number, but what's going to happen? I'm just going to do the same thing again. That was it. I mean, I'm looking at our growth rate at the time. We're close to 100% growth, no sign of slowing down. We're nowhere near saturation, nowhere near solving the problem we set out to solve. And I just, I, I love what we do. And so there were moments where we were like, you know, I was like, should I say, yeah, maybe I should. I remember calling Jeff. I was like, hey, I think we should say yes. But I think when you talk to people who have been in those positions of situations and can bring a set of data points in terms of like other companies or founders who face similar decision trees, it was really, really helpful in getting to a point where it was just like, okay, let's let's keep going. Yeah. What were some of those data points or decision trees in this case? Do you, do you remember? I think the first one was a big number is a big number. But that's just about scale, right? And so put the number aside. Imagine it's $3 million instead of like 18 or 30 or whatever it may be. Imagine the number is very low and you're at much lower scale. Would you do the? Would you do this deal? Would you sell the company for $10 million if you're growing at 100% and you're doing all these other things? And I, would, I was like, no. And so the question is like, why would you make the same decision just because you're at greater scale? And so that was probably the biggest point of feedback, which was like, look, the company's growing well. TAM is massive. We're the only players really tackling it this way. And I mean, unless you are tired and you don't want to do this anymore, you're not having fun. That's a different topic. So I would say those were sort of the center points of the conversation. Yeah, I was going to say that that's probably like a common rationale that I hear is just like, I was just kind of done. Like I I wasn't energized anymore, which that does make sense. That's a totally fine reason. Absolutely. But I would say, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very far away from that point. So at this point, you kind of have three different business lines. Is it online ordering, hardware point of sale, and then inventory supplies? Do you do any back office software, like helping them with their payroll, things like that? Or is that a roadmap thing? That's a roadmap thing. So part of our job is to, again, keep going down the value chain, keep going down sort of the problem set and tackle the biggest problems first. So point of sale is less about point of sale nowadays. It's more about workflow. Because what happens is restaurants are now faced with an omni-channel situation, owner-operated place, the phone is ringing, somebody's ordering online from your core channel, there's an order coming from Uber Eats, and a person just walked in, fax machine is going sometimes, like, what do you do with all these, like, things happening at the same time on a Friday night? So the point of sale is really more of a reconciliation, a consolidation tool that then makes sense of all these orders in the same way. So that was very important. And then closely connected to that, we'll now look at Okay, who are the employees that are clocking in and out? How do we process that payroll? I am excited about potentially solving the access to capital problem. So there's unforeseen events. 
oven breaks down, pizzeria is closed for a week. Small businesses don't get that money back. And that's huge. Like if you're Domino's or if you if you own 100 stores, you're like, ah, whatever, we'll fix it. It's not a big deal. But if you're a small business, that could mean the difference between staying open and just shutting down. So those are definitely challenges. Like I call those financial services that we'll tackle, I would say, in the next 12 to 18 months. So then if I wanted to, maybe I'm not the best candidate, but let's pretend I'm, I'm really good at this. If I wanted to then open up my own store, I could open up one multiple slice or my own Turner's Pizza locations powered by Slice. That's essentially, and I would probably apply for financing of some kind. Yeah, so we're not quite there yet, but that is the goal is for you to be able to not only apply for financing, but what I would like to do is create uh, an education platform, Slice EDU or Slice University. So if you're really passionate about this business or you're passionate about the craft and you want to turn it into a business, what is the first place you go to? And so we want to create an on-ramp, a platform so people can learn about what it's like to run a business. And then we want to be able to help them launch their new business. We have helped four or five locations launch in the last, I want to say, 12 months. And this is probably like pretty white glove manual. Yeah, we have a team that helped them build out the space, negotiate equipment, you know, pricing. Terrence, who's right there, helping them with their brand, plug in all of our technology and then help them run their shop. So it's, it, you're, you're taking a lot of the elements that you'd get from Domino's, but you're doing it in a, like a Shopify. Like exactly. Where, where you're like arming the, the pizza rebels. Like exactly. Shopify has the arming the rebels. You're almost arming the, the pizza rebels. Shopify is a very good comp. I think the, the major difference here is that probably for Shopify customers, they're more sophisticated. They're e-commerce businesses primarily. In our space, these are offline businesses. I would say that's the most challenging aspect is like reconciling the offline business with the online opportunity and like bringing those two worlds together. Yeah, I feel like there's almost this, like everything I've kind of, I'm not an expert on restaurants, but I've tried to learn as much as I can. Like there's this perception of restaurants are not good businesses, like they're, or they're very difficult or the margins aren't very high. For the most part, yes, but pizza shops are probably a little bit unique. Their margin profile is different than your traditional restaurant. Well, yeah, like we talked about, yeah. like you're gross margins are pretty high. And is that why there's so many? Just because they just tend to be more durable or they have higher margins? Definitely more durable. I think also it's about balancing supply and demand. And so the consumer appetite is very strong for pizza. It's the fallback, the, the last minute fallback. If you had a busy day and you show up home and the kids are crying and you forgot to shop for groceries, yeah. what do you do? You order pizza. It's the safe, fast, delicious, social way to feed a family. I mean, we did that last week. <laughs> or yeah. actually, it was this week. It was Monday. We're like, we need pizza. It's the solution. And to be quite honest, it's like a solid meal. I need to go on like this journey one day. I need to go on a tour to talk about the fact that pizza is actually not junk food, at least local pizza. I think it's a solid meal made with real ingredients. It's doughy base, which is like, you know, thin crust, high quality flour, real cheese, crushed tomatoes. It's a well-balanced meal. Slice of pizza is about 250 calories. Like, there's nothing bad about that. Now, I'm talking about local pizza. Yeah, like real pizza that's not made in a factory. Yeah, okay. Well, even didn't um, Michelle Obama's whole vegetables pizza thing, do you remember that? Yeah. That was a little bit ridiculous, yeah. but maybe it's there's, there's some truth to that. I don't know. I just think if a family's had a tough day, or maybe they had a really great win at the soccer game or something like that, pizza is just a great, solid option it's not this like terrible thing for, for anyone. And so you had this really interesting take that I'd never heard anyone sort of pitch it or bring it up this way. When After you said it, I was like, oh, it's kind of true. You were pretty against cloud kitchens. Like you're just like, I don't really think we need them. I don't know if they work. 
Um, and then also we were DMing about this with mm-hmm. Mr. Beast's Burger Restaurant. What's your kind of thinking around Cloud Kitchens and what happened or what do you think happened with Mr. Beast's Burger Restaurant concept? Yeah, on Cloud Kitchens, look, I think creating some density around kitchen space in urban environments, that may prove to be somewhat valuable. But I think the question for me is, why are we building more kitchens? Is like kitchen capacity the problem? Or do we have a different problem in the space? Yeah, I think we have 200 people per restaurant or something is the ratio. It's like, it's pretty insane. We have a lot of kitchens. And very often these restaurants, their kitchen space is sitting idle, aside from like these steep demand curves on like a Friday night or something like that. And isn't that sort of the pitch of cloud kitchens was that irrespective of how many already exist, it's just these cloud kitchens are really efficient. We will run them. We'll get a lot of throughput. That's the pitch. But then that efficiency is like pulled right off the table when... The only way to get demand is by partnering with DoorDash, Uber Eats, and Grubhub because these are cloud kitchens that have no storefronts. They don't have direct channels. And so if you are Turner's Chicken Wings and you're operating at a cloud kitchen, the only way for you to get customers is by plugging into Uber Eats, DoorDash, Grubhub. And they're charging you 20, 25, 30% per order because that's the trade-off, right? You're trading off the cost of rent for higher commissions with DoorDash, Uber Eats, Grubhub, and you're giving up, for the most part, the pickup channel. Yeah, that's right. And pickup is... Probably the highest margin. Is that correct? Correct. Like online order to pick up. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, is that a pretty high percentage of pizza or is most pizza delivered? It's about 50-50 split. Half of the orders are pickup, half of the orders are delivery. Interesting. Okay. So then I I remember when the Mr. Beast thing launched, I was like, oh, seems cool. It seems like fast food. I'm always like a little skeptical of fast food. I'm like, we should be eating or encouraging healthy as much as we can. So I was like, oh, this is a cool concept. I I thought it would probably work just because of the scale that he has. I don't know if that was a good view or not, but what do you think happened? I think consistency is tough, right? Like Mr. Beast, first off, has like this amazing following. And, you know, when he talks about Mr. Beast Burger, everyone in, in the country wants to try it, but it wasn't available everywhere. So that was one. And so you do have a lot of like inefficiency in terms of like his brand relative to the opportunity people had to order it. And in in the geographies where they were ordering it, it's incredibly difficult to create a consistent product. Like you can't just build a McDonald's overnight. McDonald's has spent decades putting in processes in place in order to get a consistent product. And I think it's not to say that the product was probably bad. I think it was just really inconsistent. And I think Mr. Beast has a very high bar for when he continues to do something versus not. And I think he decided that the lack of consistency was too much to overcome for him to continue to focus on it. Yeah, I kind of thought it would make more sense if he partnered with McDonald's or or, or something like that, like a scaled platform. Because I think we've kind of seen that, um, what's his name, Travis Scott? Travis Scott meal. Yeah, yeah like exactly. that makes sense. McDonald's can say, all right, we have 10,000 locations, whatever it is. We're going to serve this one thing. We're just tweaking the burger a little bit. We're putting a certain sauce on it. Now it's the celebrities or the influencers burger. Completely agree. And and so what are we talking about then? Then cloud kitchens, not cloud kitchens, but cloud brands are really just a marketing tool. Because if that same Mr. Beast brand can bring demand to a specific brand, then really what it is is a marketing play. Is there opportunities to kind of leverage some of that across the Slice network? Or are you really just not interested in that? Don't think it will work. We haven't gotten involved in it because... Basically, what's happening with cloud brands like these celebrity cloud brands is that they take a category that already exists with the shop. So let's call it pizza shops. We sell pizza, but they also sell wings. And so what they want to do is they want to take the wings category and brand it as another restaurant. And so now uh, what's happening is like, you know, Pizza Mia, their menu is shrinking. So their menu is now pizza. And now there's a second brand called, you know, Turner's Chicken Wings. 
and now that's the Wings uh, restaurant. And so they're basically taking a menu category and turning it into multiple restaurants. And I think that that is a short-term win for restaurants, but a long-term loss. I think restaurants should create products that people love. And I don't know that I should have to brand it as like Cardi B's chicken in order for me to sell really delicious chicken wings, which should be actually under the name, you know, Pizza Mia. I'm very passionate about bringing independent brands to the market, not homogenizing or consolidating independent brands under umbrella brands. I don't think we need to create more chains. I think we need more local businesses. Yeah, and you just look at what the internet has enabled. The internet has enabled a lot of independent, smaller brands to thrive. It's also very good for the large brands too. Absolutely. But the last thing I would want to do is take all the independent brands and give them a master or umbrella brand that they should work under. Well, and I think too, talking about the benefits of the internet, I think one time you mentioned online customers are worth about 4x more than offline. Is that because of higher order frequency, they order more, like our margins generally better? Yeah, so it costs less to serve them. They order more food. AOV, average order value online is, with Slice, it's about $41 now, whereas the phone order is about 22. Whoa, what's causing the markup? I think it's just not having to order from memory. So when they're calling. Oh, yeah. You can upsell. You can sort menus based on data to see like if somebody's coming in for the pizza, but you show them side orders first, it's very likely they'll add more to the cart. So you can do a lot of things to, to sell more food. And then now you have the direct information of that customer because when somebody phones in the order, For a pizza shop, their best way to retarget that customer is to mail them a physical menu. So how many people have gotten menus at the door? Do you still get that? I have actually, yeah, now that you mentioned that. They have coupons on them a lot of the time. Now, that's a very expensive, slow way to connect with your existing customers. But if you have those customers online, you can send them a text, email, or push notification with the latest items, deals, discounts, whatever it may be. That improves the frequency. And the ease of use also improves the frequency. And so combination of those things means that an online digital customer is worth four times more than an offline customer. Yeah, and I guess if you just think about like, what are the fixed costs for a restaurant? They don't change a whole lot. Like if somebody comes in twice a week or once a week, that second order, it's like just whatever the gross margins are, that's the profit essentially, because you're just adding to the fixed fixed space. Huh, interesting. It's a really interesting business, but you mentioned that some investors, it was hard to pitch this like reverse franchise model. I mean, how did you do it or what did people not quite get? Humans are very analogous. Like it's easy for us to form analogies in order to understand something. It's very difficult to try and understand something, you know, from ground up. And so very quickly when I was raising capital, it was like really important for investors to like form an opinion quickly. So then, you know, initially we got this sort of label that we're basically a grub hub for pizza restaurants. That sounds bad. If, I, if I'm if i you, I'm like, I don't want people calling me that. I don't want that. And then so the less I'm like, we're not that, then you're starting to be compared with like Square or Toast or a point of sale company. And I'm like, that's fine, but we're not that either. And I think because Slice, we've taken this approach of being multi-product very early on in our life cycle and multi-product is part of our strategy, vertical integration. The comp I have is like Domino's, but made up of all these independents, and there's no other company that has really done that. So it's been a very challenging, I don't say challenging, but it's been interesting to try and explain to people what Slice is and who Slice competes with and how many other companies are like it. So that part has been pretty interesting. Yeah. So is it more about trying to convince and educate people or is it more about just finding the ones who sort of get it or open 
to getting it? The lesson I've learned is it is a thousand times better to find the people who get it. But also as a founder, if you're raising capital, it's up to you to educate the audience. And Joseph Ancinelli, who's uh, the founder of a company called Gladly, but he was also an investor at Greylock. Incredible person. I met him when I was raising capital in 2019. And I was like, hey, I'm, I'm trying to overcome this like problem. Everyone's like, but what about DoorDash? What about Grubhub? What about Uber Eats? And he's like, but Ilir, you're like, your company is not like that. That's not what you guys do. I said, well, how do I get people away from that? And he coined this term drive-by aggregators because he's like, that's all they do, right? Like somebody places an order, they drive by, they pick it up and they leave. You don't drive by, pick up and leave. You're integrated and you're helping them run their business. You're like their core channel. And so I've used that term to like, distance ourselves from drive-by aggregators. You've got to leverage smart people around the room to help you think about ways that you can tell your story in a way that is understandable easily. Was a vertical SaaS, like vertical software, was that a, a category or a thing? It was. Jeff had this philosophy, like he actually wrote a LinkedIn post that I'm sure is still active about vertical SaaS meets marketplace. So they were one of the first to understand that marketplace companies would have to turn on SaaS features or SaaS companies would have to turn on marketplace features. And we had both and we had just launched the marketplace. And so Ooh, wait, what's the marketplace? That's the slice app. Oh, just the app. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Is it a marketplace though? A marketplace is a product that has uh, multiple options. It's, it's a, it's a product with many to many connections. Okay. So if I'm a consumer, I open slice, I can find pizzerias to order from, but do you not take a cut? Like, is that the difference between you and DoorDash? We take a cut, but it's a flat fee per order. It's okay. not like some... Like 30%. Egregious. Got it. Okay. So do, do your pizzerias actually say, hey, like Turner, order from Slice, like use the app. Do they yeah. push it for you? Yeah. I mean, that is our primary way of acquiring consumers is because pizza shops tell their customers that Slice is the best way to order the Slice app. Okay. And then do you give any kind of capabilities to the restaurants to push through Slice and try to reacquire. Yeah, so it's it's franchise-like. So I remember with NerdForce, what we did was we created a platform where you had all these like NerdForce assets, marketing assets that franchisees could tap into and then use them in their local market. We're creating a very similar model where you have all these assets. Any independent shop that's part of Slice can use those assets, which to be quite honest, are very often leading with their own brand. And so Slice is sort of the, the powered by Slice element because again, I don't want to hide the local brand. I want to shine a light on those. I want Slice to be the frame, but the local brand to be the masterpiece. Mm, yeah, that's a good way to think about it. It really it reminds me of like the powered by Shopify. Like yeah. whatever the the brand is, the e-commerce brand, it's like you, you kind of know it's powered by Shopify, but Shopify doesn't actually build the product or sell you the product. They just help deliver it to you. Right. You had an, another really interesting point there where you said surround yourself with the right people. So another thing Jeff told me, he said that you built a really good board. And some founders just don't think that's worth it or they, it's like, it's pointless. Who cares who's on your board? But why do you think it's important? And how did you go about doing that? I mean, it's really important. That's a team around the room that you can leverage. You know, when you get feedback that it's really important, then you focus on it. And so there's this like virtuous cycle. So whether it's uh, Ben Sun, who was one of my first board members, who's one of the people behind the success of Coupang, as an example, on the Midas list. So he was one of our earliest investors in 2015, or Jeff, or people that I met along the way, like Kat Cole, who is incredible. She's amazing. She's the president of Athletic Greens. And it was previously... Cinnabon. She was the head of Focus Brands. So it was like Cinnabon, Carvel, uh, Jamba, all these brands. 
So she's been awesome. Deirdre Bigley, who was a marketing leader at Bloomberg. And I can go on and on. Jason Herenstein, who was at Groupon. And these are people that are not investors. These are independent. Half are investors, half are independent. And that kind of balance and then that feedback and that diversity of experience is incredibly powerful, Uh, not only in terms of like the actual day to day of like running a company, but in guiding me as a leader, providing feedback to management teams, things like that. So what do you get from your board? Do you like ask them questions or do you expect things from them? Or My advice to anyone is you get from your board whatever you ask from your board. And by the way, if you're not getting what you're asking for, then they shouldn't be on your board. So the board is as valuable as a founder or a CEO wants them to be. Uh, and I think if you're hands off and you're not engaging them, then you know they'll kind of do the fiduciary aspect of it. But if you want to engage with them, then that's different. With my board, I've got a group chat on iMessage. And like, if something exciting happens, I'll message my friends and then I'll message the board in, in a similar fashion. So is, the, is that board group chat one of the most active on your on your phone? Pretty active. Yeah. yeah. Yep. That's good. Yep. That's the least. I mean, I know some people, they don't like their board members. Uh, well, they chose them. Yep. It's kind of bizarre, right? How do you not like your board members? Because... What do you, like these are your board members, by the way, you got to spend time with these people before you add them to your board. I mean, I find it very interesting when people say, I don't like my board, because that's not a reflection on the board. That's a reflection on the person who just says, I don't like my board. And to me, I would ask that founder or CEO, like, then are you the right person to select board members? Because you're the one who put them there. Yeah, that's true. Well, I think maybe part of the aspect is just like rushing through the whole venture ecosystem. Sometimes it's you got to really quickly raise capital. It's momentum. It's a FOMO thing. So you maybe don't get as much time to get to know those board members. I don't know how, how big of it that is, but I've always kind of wondered. I've It's one of the things I don't like about how some of the startup financing works. Yeah, I'm not a fan of that kind of process. FOMO type of process. These are long-term relationships that will determine whether your company is going to be successful or not. I definitely wouldn't rush into that decision for sure. Do you have any advice for founders specifically focused on serving small businesses? I would say the biggest mistake founders make is it's very easy, and we fell into this trap as well, to become a sales-led organization, not a product-led organization, because it's a very fragmented world and sales team members speak to very different customers at very different points in their life cycle. And so it becomes very noisy. So one salesperson says, we need to build X. The other one says, we need to build Y. Oh, based on feedback? Based on feedback, because I can't sell it because this owner wants X. The other owner wants Y, the other owner wants Z. And all of a sudden, the roadmap is full with roadmap items who aren't necessarily, they're not very strategic. It's just very reactive. And so my advice to our team is, we can't follow owners. We have to use it as a data point, but we have to lead owners. So gather feedback, but we really need to set our own roadmap. We really need to be very like deliberate with what we're building and why. And by the way, that means that maybe a segment of our TAM is not addressable today, but we'll earn that when the new feature comes on, you know, in two months. So a perfect example is today we have a point of sale system. It is specifically built for cash register shops, moving from cash register to a point of sale. Oh, interesting. And then you have another one that's for people with their own point of sale already? No, it's the same one. So at some point when our point of sales feature set continues to expand and becomes more addressable to someone who has a Clover system, for example, then we'll go after that, Tam. But I'm not going to build some like bells and whistles system that makes no sense so I can go and sell to as many shops as I want to like tomorrow. So I think just being patient, leading with product, using feedback from sales as a data point, but not as like the roadmap 
those are probably the biggest mistakes people make. Yeah, because that can be tempting, especially if you if you need revenue. Like, yeah. oh, why well, we're gonna close this million dollar deal, two percent of the whole revenue or whatever. Like, we can hit our targets if we just close this one sale. And it's probably sometimes too the customer that's giving you this feedback might not know the big vision of what you're doing, and they might not realize that you're going in a certain order because it will actually be better for them. Exactly. It's almost the the concept with like a reverse franchise. Like, I'm sure 2010. Pitch this idea of a reverse franchise independent yeah. pizza shop. They're like, get out of here. Yeah. I don't like, I don't want to be like Domino's. But it's like, no, no, here, it's all the same benefits, but you still get your own brand. Exactly. You know, we're just trying to like help them focus on one or two jobs in a day instead of eight, because focusing on eight jobs is hurting their success. Yeah. So how big do you think Slice could be? Just curious, like revenue, size of impact. I mean, I, Try to create milestones. So like Slice 1.0 was this bootstrap company where we created this product market fit. Slice 2.0 was getting to 100 plus million in revenue annually, which we've done and have announced that publicly. Slice 3.0, the next milestone is 500 million in revenue annually. So I see a very clear line of sight to that number. And it's a math formula. It's like today we work with close to 20,000 locations. We make around, let's call it $7,000 per location in revenue annually. Well, I know that number is going to be 10 at some point, $10,000 annually, and scaling to 50,000 locations. So 50,000 times 10, call it as an average, will get us to 500 million in revenue. Well, so close to 20,000 locations. You've got pretty high market share of independent yeah. pizza shops. Wow. Yeah. But what I want to do is two things. I want to make it really easy to open up an independent shop. So I want to expand the number of independent locations in the US. There's a lot of opportunity in international markets. I also think we can bring at the right moment in time, this platform to an adjacent category. Can you talk about what categories you like? I would say like any category that is very fragmented, predominantly made up of like owner operators that is mostly offline. An illustrative example could be bakeries. We can decide that, hey, okay, we're going to create a bakery category and help bake shops become really, really successful. And is this most like restaurant related because it has synergies with the supply ordering and point of sale and all that stuff? Exactly. So you want to kind of go into adjacencies instead of like totally new new worlds. And then once you get a couple different categories, it's almost like you, instead of opening DoorDash or Uber Eats, you open Slice that has a lot of different options. And as the business, it's like, hey, we're not giving up 30%. We're, it's like a dollar, $2, whatever the fixed order fee is. Yeah. And it's really about direct relationships with the merchant. And this is another sort of misconception. Slice doesn't really serve as the middle player, right? Like so Slice is technology that connects you, Turner, to your favorite local pizza shop in a way that is stronger than calling. And so for Slice, our job is to build stronger relationships between the consumer and the merchant. We don't want to be in the middle. Middle players like third parties are becoming synonymous with higher costs, which is accurate, and more problems because there's now a, another party in the mix. For us, we build core products for shops, connect them to the owners, and then try and be a sort of a helper in that process to make sure that they know how to you know leverage these systems. Are we going to have to get a name change then from Slice? I don't know. I like Slice. I think Slice is one of the reasons why we went from my pizza to Slice was that it can imply pizza, but I think it can expand to mean a lot more than just pizza. Yeah, I think it can too. It's a single word, which a single word, short word like that, you can be adaptable with. It. Totally. Apple is a phone. So it's not It's not fruit. It's not apple. So do you want to do rapid fire questions? It's like just a couple yeah. questions. Who is your favorite CEO? Do you have any founder, CEO that you really look up to? Oh, wow. Favorite CEO. I've been learning a lot more about Frank Slootman at Snowflake. The reason why I, I get drawn to him is just his focus on performance, his focus on teams, 
and just constantly maintaining a very high bar for performance. It's very easy to kind of slow things down a little bit, especially once you... When you, you're yeah. successful. Yeah. I would say from an inspiration standpoint, this is maybe pretty cliche, but what people may feel about Elon Musk, I think he has an incredible ability to tell a very big story. His ability to completely remove any constraints from his thinking in terms of what companies he's building, what they can be, is very inspiring. I've kind of learned to, if he says something or if he tries to take on some crazy project, I'm like, okay, why is he right? Like, what is he seeing? Like, what do I need to change? Or how do I need to just like open my mind to why it could work? And I can still totally disagree. Like, I think some of the recent maybe moves he's made, I'm like, that was ballsy. That was an interesting choice. But hey, I can see why you did that. Yeah, I think from a day-to-day standpoint, for sure, there's a lot to like debate and argue with. But for SpaceX, making humanity multi-planetary, it's a huge vision. May end up failing at that. But along the way, he has very easily built spaceships that like launch and land like it's nothing. And so I think that's what big visions are capable of in terms of like giving teams ambition to do something really unique. So I I, I really admire that. Do you have anything that you're maybe not good at originally being a founder or business operator that you're not really good at? A lot of things. Well, I'm still very bad at a lot of things, I guess is the way to say it. But one thing that I've tried to get better at is uh, listening, active listening. Any founder has to do a million jobs and you kind of know how every job is. And so when you start scaling the team, you still know all those things better than anyone because you did those jobs. And I think that's the curse of like bootstrapping and then going to scale. And in those early years or middle years, I was not giving enough space to people to learn their own version of what it's like to operate slice because I had the luxury of time and I had my way and I would not give people enough time to learn their way. So I I think patience and listening and those kinds of things are definitely in a much better place today than they were like six years ago. That's encouraging. So I saw you tweet this. Did a baby really order a $94 order on slice? What happened? It it made it on Reddit and it was like the post of the day. Were they like playing with the phone, like press the buttons or? Seems like it. So this person like posted on Reddit that their baby had their phone and you know, any product like Slice, we don't do like payment verification. Like when you hit place order, it's not going to say, oh, can you re-enter your like whatever. We're trying to make ordering pizza easy. So yes, a baby ordered $94 of pizza. That's awesome. I remember reaching out to the person. I think we covered the cost of that food, but it was pretty cool that a baby could do it. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's what a good marketing line. Yeah. Like so easy a baby could order. Exactly. exactly. So last question. Do you have a favorite interview question that you like to ask at Slice? One that I learned from, uh, actually from, Keith Raboy posted this on Twitter. Twitter for me is like an education platform. By the way, it can be whatever you want it to be. And for me, I use it for education. But one of the questions that I really loved was, if you were to join Slice, who would follow you? The answer can be very telling in terms of what kind of leader you're potentially hiring. If they say everybody, I'd be cautious because the question is, are you holding people accountable? Like if they say nobody, that's a problem. And so the details of the answer matter. Because you probably want to know if you hire like a new CTO or CMO, like do they have a bench that they can come and fill in and they're just really good? Exactly. But I don't want like the entire bench because that is an indication that they're potentially not holding enough people accountable. And they're just, you know, in essence, creating this like safe space for people to just do whatever. What I try to hear is like a little bit of a balance. So maybe they have like two or three people that they know from prior jobs, like, oh, I'm going to try to get her to join or yeah. I think I can get her. 
but also you want them to ask a question. So you want them to say, well, you know, what does Slice need? That's fair. You know? That's actually probably yeah. the good answer. So most people will be like, oh my God, all these people, they like this person will come and that person will come and yeah. so on and so forth. And obviously it's hypothetical, right? Like can't break a, a non-solicitor or something like that. But again, the spirit of the answer is very telling, which is why I love it. Yeah, that's fair. Actually, I lied. This is the last question. Okay. I think I, you said something about this, which I was just kind of intrigued by. The first employee at Slice, she still works there. Is that true? Yeah. So, well, the first employee at My Pizza is still here, but so is the first employee at like version two, which was Slice. So Jen Berger, who joined in 2015, we had a little tiny office, maybe the size of this room. There was no furniture. There was like one chair. There was a, a cardboard box and she put her laptop on there. We walked to Best Buy to buy a laptop. That was the onboarding process. Wow. Was it a pizza box, the cardboard box it was on? I wish. Uh, big mistake. But it was just like a box with like, I don't know, something. So in that it. was her desk. That was her desk. And uh, she is now our sales leader globally. Wow. Okay. Is she based in New York? She's based she in New York? New York. Oh, nice. Okay. Nice. Why do you think she stayed? Like, did you, did she ever try to leave? Were you ever like, I need to give her new challenges? Like, how do you think about keeping someone like that so long? It's a good question. I mean, it's probably a good question for her, but I like to believe that uh, we established a really good relationship just filled with trust. I think she had unlimited opportunity to tackle different problems every couple of years, whether it's going into management or going into different sort of category in terms of profile of shops, selling different products. So I think a combination of those things, but mostly I like to believe that I've treated Jen as like a partner in the business communicate with her about different changes or different opportunities well in advance of even communicating with the company. And I do that with a handful of people who I think are real drivers in the company. So do you think that's important then as a founder, just if, if there's things that are coming down the pipeline, you want to make sure you communicate things that may catch people off guard? Or? Without a doubt, especially again, like with tenure, especially with people who are really, really critical to the success of the business, both former success and future success. I don't know if other founders do this, but I've got a select number of relationships where I am very close with people. And by the way, they push back on me. They'll call me crazy if I do something stupid. And they happen organically over time and usually are drawn to those people because of their performance. And I would say, yeah, you've got to like wrap your arm around them and keep them close. Thanks for tuning into the PL. And thanks again to Elir for coming on the show and letting us crash his face. If you want to support the show, the best ways are to leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts, like, comment, subscribe on YouTube, and share with someone who might like it. If you don't want to miss an episode, subscribe to the newsletter in the show notes and you'll get new ones in your inbox the moment they drop. Thanks again for tuning in. And see you next time.